Hello and welcome to another episode of Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. It's been a hot second since I've released a bonus episode for you all, and I thought now was a great time to share a special interview that I did with episode 48 guest Stotra Chakrabarty, PhD, for his conservation class at McAllister College. Stotra loved my unconventional approach to conservation and invited me to speak about why I went to such lengths to create a podcast from scratch. He asked me several questions about my story, the journey that led to launching Rewildology, and advice for anyone else considering going outside of the confines of academia or their current bubble to pave their own path in this field. We recorded this conversation in December 2021, just before Rewildology's first birthday in January. The podcast had recently hit some big milestones, and it's crazy to see how much it's grown from there. All right, friends, without further ado, here is this manifesto-esque, yes, I just made up a word, conversation all about rewritology with Sutra and me. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. This is a very special moment because, um, first of all, I think uh, this is my first time I'm doing this, that I am chatting with someone and recording it and putting it out there as a resource to be used for my conservation course, which is conservation in the Anthropocene. But this recording will also be part of the resource, which would be available to the entire McAllister community and outside so that anyone who's interested in and thinking about an absolutely unconventional way or basically an quote unquote unconventional way of doing conservation per se can tune in be inspired and listen to this so that they can have their own notes to uh, go about doing uh, something fascinating beyond the traditional uh, academia per se so thank you for tuning in so today i am chatting with the fantastic Brooke Mitchell Normal Norman, and I'm gonna take a moment to introduce Brooke. It's a fascinating introduction. What whatever she has achieved and accomplished till now, well, it's I think is beyond brilliant. So without um, spending more time, let me introduce you to Brooke. So Brooke is a conservation biologist, which is uh, why we are chatting today. She's a travel addict and an, an admirer of all things wild, which I think uh, since you perhaps are listening to this show or to this recording would be uh, interested in, or that's the part that resonates with most of us. Um, her globe trotting has taken her to the bushes of Africa, the jungles of India, the pristine Galapagos Islands. I'm jealous, very jealous, polar bears, in the frozen tundra, I'm jealous times two. And uh, she just, I know she just came back from Costa Rica. I'm jealous times three. So so she has, um, she has visited these places, learned about their communities and talked to people who work with conservation and with wildlife in these areas. And um, she is basically, she, she began 
her podcast series Rewildology to share stories from from the incredible people that she has come across in these places, the good, the bad, and the hilarious, of course. And she she talks about them through her um, conservation podcast, which she uh, mentions that it's a it's a conservation and travel experience. And if you care, she has a bachelor's degree in zoology from the Ohio State University and a master's degree in conservation uh, biology from Miami University's Global Field Program. Um, I personally know Brooke because I was on the seat where she is today, where I was chatting with her about Asiatic lions uh, a couple, a few weeks back or perhaps a month back. And since then we have been talking about different things and I am phenomenally inspired by what, by what Brooke does, because I think this is something, uh, I think using such media or using such mediums to develop conservation is the only way forward. And uh, so today, I would be talking with her about what got her interested in doing this and how people who are listening to this particular um, uh, recorded session can use this to develop their own. So thank you, Brooke, for chatting with me. And by the way, uh, I'm pretty sure that everyone can figure out that I'm superbly nervous, not just that this is the first time doing this, but also it's very difficult for uh, like doing this with a professional podcaster who does this all the time. So, so I, I hope, I hope, uh, please uh, apologize if I sort of, um, you know, go wayward, stutter somewhere, but that's all because I am thoroughly kind of happy, nervous about doing this. So thank you, Brooke, for joining me today. So uh, let's, let's begin with uh, knowing, like, what's your story? Like, we all have these conservation stories that you, we have listened to these conservation stories that you put forward about these fascinating people. But I, it would be fantastic to know what's your story and how you got into doing this. Um, Absolutely, Stotra. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And of course, when you reached out and had the idea for this podcast chat, of course, I was like, yeah, let's do this. This is going to be so much fun. Um, so again, thank you. Thank you. And it's it, just like you said, it's interested being on in this seat versus your seat. So yeah, my story, my story. Um, I grew up in the Appalachians, middle of nowhere, used to have a pretty thick accent for anybody who's been to that part of the world. If you think of like West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky, that's pretty much where I grew up. So the beautiful rolling hills of Appalachia. With that, I wasn't exposed to much. The only thing that I saw when it came to wildlife or conservation was being a veterinarian. And then of course, watching as many wildlife documentaries as I could growing up. I mean, I have three sisters, so it was whenever I was allowed to have the remote for a little amount of time that I could watch some of these awesome documentaries and just seeing lions in the Serengeti and these places that I thought at the time, I, I had no idea if I would ever see in my actual life because my parents, I mean, they always made sure that we had enough 
but we never had excess in other words. So I come from a very blue collar family and my parents sacrificed a lot to give us girls everything that we had. And I'm insanely grateful for what they did. But with that, I was, like I said, I just wasn't exposed to much. And so I was like, okay, what can I do to save wildlife? I know veterinarian. So that is the, that's the path I pursued. So I went to Ohio State University because I grew up <laughs> a big football fan and ISA was the only option, which looking back, that was kind of stupid because I probably could have gotten a full ride somewhere else, but whatever. It's like Ohio State's it. It's my only option. It's the only school I applied for. Again, not smart, but it, I was, I was stubborn. And so I was like, okay, great. I'm going to become a zoological veterinarian. And that is the path I went down. I went down at hard Stodra. I was a pre-vet. I studied zoology. I like try to have the highest GPA I could completely crush myself. Um, cause I just had that standard that I held myself to. And then after that, so I kind of had this, I guess you can call it come to Jesus meaning. I don't know what else, else you want to call it. This awakening my senior year where I realized that, ah, I don't know if this is for me. I started working at the Columbus zoo at the time. And that was the first time in my life I was employed for me being me. I was, I was hired on guest engagement. And this was the first time I was like, oh my gosh, I, my personality has a meeting. It's more than just my academic prowess, I guess you can say, because I was really good in school. And I was engaging with people, completely revamped the guest engagement team. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. And then I really started to question my path, which was insanely frightening. By this point, I was a senior and I had already started to apply to vet school. I, I mean, I was going, going down the path. Like I had this one vision and I was going to do it. And so when it started to shake, I was scared out of my mind. And so I applied and then <laughs> I got in for an interview and I was thankfully partnered with the two worst interviewees I could have or interviewers that I could have ever been partnered with. They were two pathological veterinarians. And so they were in the, you know, just looking in microscopes all day, studying parasites and all kinds of different diseases of animals, the biggest personality clashes of all time. And thank God, because I pretty much ran out of that room screaming, no, Absolutely not. I cannot do this. I will. I, I'm not going to do this anymore. So this was December of 2013 because I graduated in 2014 and I called my dad and I was like, dad, I, I don't want to do this. And he's like, about time you realize this. I never saw you sticking like what, what he said He's like, I never saw you sticking shots in tigers butts for your living. Like, <laughs> just. I was like, okay, okay, great. And so then I just went, kept going down this journey. I always knew that I wanted to do something post undergrad. And I luckily found my, my program, which was the global field program, which was, is a master's program based out of Miami university, which you said in, in the introduction. So thank you for that. And this is the first program that I found where I could finally start traveling. At this point, I had barely been outside of Tennessee and that's two states away from Ohio. And I always had these big dreams of always been this adventurous, wonderless spirit. And I was like, okay, finally, I could, I could travel with my graduate program. Oh my gosh, let me apply. 
And I didn't find this program until, I don't know, like two weeks before the deadline to apply. <laughs> so <laughs> I hurry up and whipped an application together and just went for it. And I got in and I was like, oh my gosh, here we go. Now I'm in grad school. We'll see what comes out of this. And so then I finally started to travel and I, I really started to experiment on what I wanted to do in the world of conservation and through that program. So unlike a thesis, like a classic thesis program, master's thesis program or PhD, um, what we had to do was a portfolio of projects and you have a master plan is what you call. So essentially I made my mission statement and then all of the projects that I did were underneath the umbrella of my mission statement. And then instead of, uh, you know, defending a thesis, what I did is I had to submit my master plan and then the committee would decide if I had reached it or not. And luckily they did. So what I studied was um, how do you different forms of like education. So that's what I did. So I looked at a ton and ton and ton of different things. And that is when I really started to see all the different avenues that there is out there for engaging people in conservation. Because before too, I was really exposed to academia. Um, I was in the zoo world at this time. And then what I found is since big cats were my thing, which as you know very well, are some of those conflict-ridden groups of animals there are. One of the biggest saviors, I guess you can say, or conservation programs or whatever you wanna call it is sustainable travel. And that is when I discovered it during my program. And I'm like, oh my God, this is my calling. I need to come, I, this is the career path that I need to pursue is I want to do conservation travel. Again, I had been to maybe two countries outside of the US by this point. So I went to Namibia for cheetahs as part of my program. Um, I went to Baja, California, and then eventually India. And that was my last trip. I went to like the Western Ghats in, in the Southern Indian regions. Saw my first tiger, cried. It was glorious. It was wonderful. One of the best moments of my life. Um, but this is what I, <laughs> I totally, right? you would know. I totally see that. <laughs> Absolutely. Bored myself. Yeah, but but, um, but but funny thing is, I've not seen it. Like I, I don't think I've seen a tiger in the Western Ghats. I've mostly seen in Central India. So they super super jealous. Right, super this jealous. wasn't in the Western Ghats that I saw them. I saw right. it uh, down in Bandapur, Nagarhole. So I saw them in more of the southern region. But I was yeah, there. Yeah, but it's also it's also part of the the whole complex, which is like Nagarhole and yeah. So not seen there. I've yeah, been there, right. Crazy. You you do have a lack of flair about seeing like very rare <laughs> things. But yeah, sorry. Continue. No, no, yeah. I, I just got teleported to that whole system for a while. <laughs> but yeah, please. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I was insanely lucky. I was insanely lucky um yeah so after that and that is when I was like oh my god I absolutely need to go into conservation travel that is what I need to do it's I don't necessarily need to be working directly with these cats I need to be inspiring people to go see them and place their their dollar on seeing them because then they're going to be conserved because there is a financial reason to keep these animals alive and thriving I'm like okay that is where I need to spend my time and so at this point I had, I was, I was living in Colorado. So I moved around a couple of times and there was this company here called natural habitat adventures. And they were, are one of the supreme, uh, conservation travel companies there are in the world. And I was like, okay, you all are going to hire me. 
I don't know when or how or whatever, but you're going to hire me. So I applied for three different roles and the third role, well, and I was being interviewed, she's like, you know, there's actually this new position that we're going to be rolling out. Why don't you go for that one? So it was technically the fourth role that I finally got at NADHAV and my career sprung. And so that is when um, I started to work for them. I worked my way up again. I had almost no travel experience, but I was enthusiastic as all get out and, uh, helped restructure the company. We put this brand new adventure concierge, uh, center, um, department in the middle of everything. And then I started to work heavily on the conservation side, which is really exciting. And then also a little nugget that eventually became the podcast. I had no idea at the time is I hosted these things called conservation coffee talks where once a month I had an expert come in and present about whatever it is that they were an expert in. And also some people within the company, they would present about whatever they were curious about, or a lot of them were also conservation biologists or guides or something. And they would also speak about it. So I hosted those for two years and then COVID hit. (laughs) Yeah. And we all know what happened to the conservation (laughs) world, what happened to travel what happened yeah. to everything when, when COVID hit. And so my entire department was cut and I didn't realize how much of my identity and my self-worth I had put into that role until I lost it. And I was, I was lost for a little bit and it didn't help that there was no conservation jobs to get after this right. either. That's so, true. but I, I went home, had about three, four glasses of wine <laughs> And then the next day I put on my big girl pants and I started applying for jobs. I was like, okay, well, the skills that I do have, what, what role can I get? And, um, I found a job at a startup here in Denver and they needed a customer success manager. And I'm like, well, I'm good with people. That's one thing I, that's, that's applicable across industries. Absolutely. So they hired me on for that. And, um, you know, just built their company as much as I could, but there was a big missing hole, you know, it was a big missing piece of me. I was not working in a conservation in any way because I couldn't. And then I watched that. I'm sure you've seen it. The latest documentary with David Attenborough, his like big witness statement one where it's like a life on this planet or a life yeah. on planet earth. I don't, I don't remember yeah. the name of it. Yeah. And I bawled my freaking eyes out. <laughs> And I'm not an emotional person. I really am not an emotional person, but I lost it. And I looked over at my husband and I'm just like, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I had already had a little bit of a nugget of starting this podcast. I love podcasts. I listen to a podcast every single day, but I never found one in the nature genre that interested me. And not that there's not that there's not good ones out there. It's just, I hadn't found the one that I was looking for. And so I had already been kind of thinking about it. I was like, maybe, maybe one day I could do a podcast, but I'm a biologist. I'm a scientist. I'm not a podcast host. I'm not an audio engineer. I'm not any of these things. But after watching that, I was like, I got to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to figure it out and I'll figure out I'm going to do it. So the next day I messaged my boss. I was like, I'm going to go down to part-time. You need me to anyways, because they were going to the slow season and they were a startup. And so, you know, (laughs) the goods are, you know, the highs are high and the lows are low when you're in a startup. And I was like, so you need me to go to part-time anyways, and I'm going to launch this podcast. And I did. And so this was 
almost a year ago today, essentially, I started my first round of interviews in December of 2020. And I launched in January 26th of 2021. And last week, the podcast hit 10,000 downloads, which is still can't believe that. Happy anniversary. And you have done stupendously well. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, still can't believe it. Such a still can't believe it. I've met the most inspiring people that I still to this day cannot believe that I've had the opportunity to talk to them. I'm now doing my second travel series on Costa Rica. My first one was on Nepal. Um, released, I'm getting ready to release episode 54 in mm-hmm. two or three days, which is nuts. And so, yeah, that's that's my journey, I guess, in a quick nutshell. <laughs> Whoa, so so well, uh, that journey took like like took us from the United States of America to India to Africa to Costa Rica and to a lot of places and people that you have connected with. So I, as as a person, like I personally am really, really enthused and like really curious about how did you, like, like I, I, I got like, I totally hear it screaming out of you that passion was the fuel that drove you through all of that because I'm pretty sure that 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 like you know redefining yourself breaking yourself down bringing back to like being in terms of unemployment getting 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 out of it crushing it in the in the bigger circle do doing conservation again bringing thinking out of the box that needs a lot of courage and bravery and i totally get it that we can run out of steam i do most of the times but you have done it gracefully and successfully. But also, I'm very curious about how did you come to naming your podcast Rewildology? Because I totally get it that that's the essence of it, like rewilding the planet. But this is such a great mixture of like, this is like, like you know, the science of rewilding or, or the study of rewilding, if I can think about it in the Latin words. But, and then you have this, really funky hippie uh like you know like the like the entire portrait of like reaching out to the audience which i believe is brilliant so i just want to know that how did you come to this particular um you know uh, like name for your podcast series yeah I wish I could say that it all came to me in a flash of white and it was one try and it, <laughs> trust me, it was not in any way, shape or form. I'm awful at naming anything. For example, growing up, I didn't even name my baby dolls. They didn't even have names. Like I'm the worst at naming stuff. And so honestly, naming the podcast was much harder. This might've been the hardest part of all of it, to be honest with you. <laughs> and I mean, I had like three or four interviews under my belt and I still didn't have a freaking name on this thing. <laughs> and so I still didn't. So what I did is I rewatched David Attenborough's documentary with the intent of getting inspired for a name. And I don't, I think I was traveling or something and I like have my notebook out and I was in an airport and I'm rewatching it. I'm like writing down notes and I'm taking down keywords 
Because one thing I did do is I wrote down a set of keywords that I didn't want to be in it. And those keywords were your stereotypical ones. Those are that are like, go to a podcast list or go to a book list or just go to somewhere. And all of the words that they used in it, I didn't want to use. Because I, this podcast, I was like, this is going to be completely different than anything that is out there. And so it needs a name that is not like anything that's out there. And so I sat down and I was writing down all of these keywords in this documentary and he kept saying rewild. I'm like, Ooh, I like that. I was like, I like that. I like that rewild. So I started (laughs) and then I went online and there's this website called like business name generator or something like that. And so I just put in rewild And then there's like a million different things that pops up. And one of the worst, like one of the first ones that I was going to do was called wildology instead of rewild, but wildology, apparently that's a dog food brand. So (laughs) (laughs) I was like, not that, but I'm like, what about rewildology? And so this is another big thing too. If anybody's going to create anything, do your research. So I Googled it. I went to the U.S. Trademark Association thing, Mabob, whatever that website is. I did everything that I could. I did all the due diligence that I possibly could to make sure that no one already had that name. And ding, 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 Rewildology did not exist in the ethers of the internet. So I made up a word (laughs) and I made up the title. And it's a success. And yeah, 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 like, and it is. Like it's, it's big. And everyone's just, yeah, everyone's like, oh my gosh, I absolutely love that name. And they always have the same thing too. They're like, how'd you come up with it? I'm like, well, it was not a graceful story, but it worked out in the end. And then also too, it took me, um, so the logo, I get a lot of compliments on the logo. Yeah. Again, I didn't want it to be just the standard brown green and blue i'm like every single other nature podcast is brown green and blue and while that might be on brand i i wanted if somebody is scrolling through podcasts what is going to catch their eye and that is what i wanted so this is actually my third logo it took me three tries (laughs) to come up with this one and then it was my last artist i found him on fiverr so because i I didn't do that. I did not do that at all. I just sent him some of my ideas and he came up with my logo. And (laughs) that's my husband. When I opened up the, what do you call it? The mock-ups of whatever, of the first time I ran around my apartment, like a freaking kid on Christmas morning. I was like, oh my God, babe, look at this logo. This is unbelievable. And that was it. So I finally had my logo and I finally had my name. And then I launched it a couple of weeks later after that. And then of course I got to get a website and blah, blah, blah. I had to build a website and everything, but yeah. So that's how those came to be. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's inspirational. That's I'm sure that's uh, the right mix of, what would I say? Inspiration, passion, luck. And um, so that's all coming together. And if, if people, if, anyone who's listening might be thinking about what's the logo about what's the what's the what's the name of the podcast i i would um attach a link to the to the site of brooke's podcast series and you can go in and see how fantastic that logo is because that's the first thing that i saw when when, uh, when 
yeah, that's it. <laughs> See, that's that's <laughs> how funky it is. I was like, wow. And you yeah. have to go check out the Instagram page, the Twitter page, and the website because it's just, I think it's the, the new generation statement for conservation because all that brown, boring, green things are done with. That's great. I'm not saying that it, that we don't have, but I think moving forward, this is what we are trying to achieve because at the end of the day, it's uh, people who are right now, who are in our, like the early career systems are going to inherit what's, what's bad and difficult in the world right now. So it's our turn, I guess, or people like Brooke, whose turn it is to show like where we can reach with this entire redefined vibrant and uh, new ways of looking at um, conservation. So bringing, uh, bringing that thought together, uh, I just wanted to know that like, I'm pretty, like, as you mentioned that uh, conservation travel, I'm sure this is like a buzzword that we have been uh, chatting about. And I'm pretty sure there are lots of people who are like, just going like, oh, you can travel for conservation? You can conserve for traveling? And so I'm pretty sure they're just going like, wow, that, does that happen? Because a lot of people love traveling and more so because we have not been able to travel for a long time. And it's fantastic to travel for conservation. So if, if you would like to, like, I'm sure you've met these fantastic people and communities as you have moved across. Would you want to just quickly perhaps share a few inspirational or like your highlights about like meeting people or meeting communities or see so that so that people might think about like what you exactly feels like when you travel and and do your conservation travel per se that would be fantastic yeah so one of the biggest and best intersections that i love when i travel is i try to meet as many local people as possible and because I know that if I'm meeting somebody local, especially if I'm supporting them financially, whether it's a naturalist guide, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's X, Y, or Z, if I know that I'm visiting them, then my dollars are directly supporting them. And they know that the only reason why I'm there is because of the wildlife. So there is financial incentive to keep it there. So there's so many places in the world where if there were no more tourists, they would be gone. Yeah, there is absolutely, absolutely no way on this planet the Serengeti would still be here if it wasn't oh, for tourist dollars. Oh, absolutely. Right? Definitely. Right. Yep. Right. And so that that's my big focus. So of course, I'm a biologist. Wildlife is my absolute favorite thing in the whole wide world. So I'm going to these places to see that wildlife and it's, and it's so funny. It's so funny. So true. Every single time I go, it's always the people that I completely fall in love with. It's, I always have these, I bring my camera, I take these beautiful photos. And then I, it's always the people that I have stories about. I mean, like I was just in Costa Rica and I went for all my birthday. We went to this wonderful cooking class and they took us a tour of their sustainable farm. And then <laughs> There's a Costa Rican moonshine that we did shots of and it was wonderful. And like, <laughs> that is the story that I'm going to tell the most about is, yeah. I mean, I have a tendency of finding the moonshine when I go places abroad, mm. but again, mm. I hang out with the local people. I get to meet local Absolutely. people and 
that is when you get to see what a community is really about, what a culture is really about. And I mean, like this, this scarf came from Nepal. This is my- I was um, just gonna say that. I didn't wanna, <laughs> I didn't wanna, if I like, like, you know, I didn't wanna like pry, but I'm like, whoa, that's, that looks like something that I mm -hmm. like perhaps might connect to. I'm like, yeah, yes, but yes, yeah, that's, I'm so glad subtle, you said that. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so, so I, yes, I travel in a very different way. So you are not going to see me at a big resort. And again, I don't want to, what's the word? I, I don't want to guilt trip anybody for the way that they've yeah. traveled in the past. And I don't want anyone to feel like they've done it wrong because even if somebody has gone to an area and maybe not have traveled the most sustainable way, at least you are putting your dollars into something that wasn't yeah. consumptive in some other industry or something like, Absolutely. even if that, even if that resort wasn't there, then the local people that they are able to employ wouldn't have a job and they might be doing something else instead. So I don't want to completely demonize other forms of travel, but this mm -hmm. is the way that I travel when I go abroad. And so it's always wildlife focused. And I try to meet as many people as possible in the community. And then also try to go to and support as many local businesses as I possibly can. I'm just sometimes in really remote places so like that doesn't exist, but if I am, then go to the local restaurant or the local place and hire the local guide and, and everything. So that's how I like to travel. That's, that's amazing because that's a lot of capacity building right there, because the way way and I, I believe that I learned a lot interacting with you about conservation travel, because I really did not have quite a bit of like, a, what would I say? I was not educated enough about it, which you kindly educated me a bit. At least I started now reading about that this realm exists in a very different way than I actually thought, because it's different when conservation biologists travel. It's different when you have to use that and portray it to the world that this is the most sustainable way to do it. Like when you can connect with uh, nature as well as the communities that are associated with it so that you can build capacity in a way which is sustainable. Super uh, inspiring, Rook. Uh, so, so I was wondering like you, you got these people connected and you bring, bring out their stories about different uh, different conservation stories, and I'm sure that that has left you pretty much enriched, uh, and that has also left uh, the whole community very enriched. And I'm talking about the community that listens, the community that gets inspired, and the community who sort of takes these messages home. And you know, young kids who wants to who want to be like, whoa, you know what? I listen something about slots today. I listened about, I heard about sharks and I heard about, uh, you know, tigers in Nepal and, and, and I want to do that. So, so do you have a particular, so I'm asking this, this particular, what would I say, definite question, because I'm sure quite a few people out there who are listening would, and I know they have their own podcasts. They want to build their own podcast, uh, uh, series so do you have a particular like uh what would i say selection criteria in which you sort of chart up like okay these are the sort of stories that i want to 
bring to the community, bring to the audience? Or do you have that? Or do you have like, it's pretty random or like the based on connections or like, how does it go? Because I'm pretty sure it's daunting to begin something so, so fresh and from the scratch. So if you would, could just touch upon that, that would be. Yeah. <laughs> so I would like to say that I have like a super defined process, but I don't. Um, it's a mix of, it's a mix of all of, all the things you just said. So I started with my network and luckily for me, I mean, I just turned 30 and I'm happy to admit that because I finally feel like people can respect me because they're like, Oh, you're 30 now. It's like, yeah, everything I just worked for, for the past freaking 30. decade, I'm 30 now. So respect me. Um, anyways, anyways, um, <laughs> yeah. So I started with my network. And, and no matter where you're at in your conservation sphere or journey or whatever, you already have a network. So start there. Who is your best friend? Who is your mentor? Who is your professor, AKA Stotra? Who is somebody in your direct sphere in your like first circle sphere that you can connect with to either come on as a guest or who knows somebody that could be a guest. So that is where I started. So if you listen to my first, I don't know, 10, 15 episodes, most of those people are my really good friends <laughs> because I was nervous as all get out. Just like you said, opening up. Um, my very first guest was my mentor, my, and I call him my Colorado dad. His name is Bill Given, and he's now actually my boss which is awesome. It's a whole different story. But so I started there and, and the people that are the most close to me that I know the most about that I didn't have to just pick off Instagram or somewhere random and started there. And then I got my confidence. I started to realize how to make good episodes, how to write interesting questions. And I got all the jitters out, all the butterflies are out. And so by this point, I'm like to episode 10, 15 or something like that. And then I started to ask people who they knew. It's like, so who do you know that I need to know? And that's pretty much how I found everybody else. There's, it's very, it's very rare that I reach out to somebody on a complete blue. And that does happen. That does happen every once in a while. And if I don't hear back or if I, you know, whatever X, Y, or Z, you know, for some reason they can't come on, I don't take it personally. Because I mean, the podcast, like, I mean, my email, the rewatology email has received a ton of pitches that I don't even reply back to makes me feel good that they're pitching, but I was like, you don't know the show at all. That just no. Um, and so, and so I never take it personally when somebody's just like, you know, I, that sounds great. Maybe sometime in the future. Yeah. But I always make sure that I have my docket full. So I'm always asking, I'm always connecting in as many ways as I possibly can meet new people. And it's almost always through my network. And then one of the biggest things is I'm very cognizant of the diversity of guests I have on. Right. I'm very cognizant of this. And I mean, just, just for example, I will be completely transparent. I have realized that I have not had a, a anyone that's black, you know, an African-American or an African or anybody that's of a darker skin tone on my podcast recently. And that really bothers me. And so I'm going out right now to change that. And so that is how diverse I want everybody to be on. I want as many voices as I possibly can. Even my last episode was kind of controversial, 
And I'm, I'm glad I'm glad even my, <laughs> my boss, Bill came in the other day. He's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to cuss. Um, but he's like, man, your last guest really made me mad. And I'm like, good, good. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. That means that I'm having a diverse group of people on a wide set of ideals on. I want every single idea to be on because if, for example, with that last guest, if that is his view of conservation and he is using that view in representation of a whole group of ways of thinking, then that voice needs to be out there too. Cause we need to understand that as conservationists, we need to understand how everybody thinks in this field, because the more we understand, then the more we can come to solutions together and the more we can find ways to conserve what we have left. And so, yeah, so it's a mix of, it's always through my network. It's a little bit of pitching, throwing random softballs into the ethers and seeing what sticks and then being very cognizant of the diversity of people I have on. I think we're up to 15 countries now, 15 different countries represented on the podcast. And I would love that to get to the whole world by the time I'm done And, and very cognizant of the number of women voices I have on. I will say that at first I was, so the original, the very, very first name, oh, we're going back now. The very first name of this podcast was going to be Expedition Her, Expedition Her, but like her, and it was all going to be women in the field. Right. And because of course, you know, I wanted to get as many women voices out there as possible. And then I thought about it. I thought about this really hard, really hard. And then I'm like, you know what? Some of the most important people in my life I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to have on or tell their story simply because they're the wrong gender. Mm. And I was like, that goes against why I would have an all women podcast, you know, like I want to have as many voices on as possible. So why am I limiting myself to one genitalia, you know? Yeah. And so that is how (laughs) (laughs) I want <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I love that. I, I so love that. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I'm so grateful that you mentioned this. And this is like I think I think anybody who's listening to this right now should take take note of what Brooke just mentioned that conservation or doing conservation is so crucial to have all of these voices represented, all of these like thoughts. Uh, to be uh, taken care of or at least heard because I think right now conservation has become so political and right now right now I'm being very candid that it has really become so political that you cannot you have to take sides well of course but then it's a connected sphere and as you rightly mentioned if you do not listen to all of those voices perhaps we are doing it wrong it just cannot be that your way or my way or the highway. It just cannot. It just has. It has to be that level of, and I've been I, that level of, um, you know, juxtaposition and listening out. So, so now, like, just a small little side question. Like, when you, I'm sure this has happened to you a few times, quite a few times, and will happen in the future. That when you listen to someone speak about something that they are. Uh, they are talking about their side of the story about conservation or which you 
probably in your ideology do not cater to or do not substantiate how does that like how how do you react to it like what's your moral like association when you are being the host and doing this but you're not like you know you don't probably substantiate or you know um approve in your mind of those thoughts right <laughs> yes and this past episode is a perfect example of that <sighs> what sorry i did not want to put you on the spot no no no, no this this, this is a really fantastic cool question to- this is a fantastic question and i'm so glad you asked it because it is very needed in our society today one i never get offended Hmm. because what is there to be offended about what why would i be offended that the that this guest or whatever guest i have on this is what they really view as the answer so who am i to judge them right and Absolutely. they're making an insane amount of impact in maybe mm. a way that I wouldn't do it, mm. but they have made a tremendous shift for conservation. And right. probably through their message, they are reaching people that I would never have access to. So who am I to judge them? Normally in one of these situations, they are answering a question of mine. Mm. And so I let them go. I just let them talk. I just let them talk through because if they can explain their point from A to Z, then there's nothing for me to add. You know, there's nothing for Mm. me to say. And it's up to the listener to decide if they agree with whatever they said Mm. or if they don't agree, whatever they said. I am never going to argue on my podcast. And one of uh, my episodes, it was really, really good with a good friend of mine. Um, She was in the like lobby conservation side of things. And we did have a little bit, I don't want to say banter is the right word, more of like, um, she's like, I mean, one of the things she said, she's like, can I challenge you on that? And I'm like, yes, please. Like, please challenge me on that. And it's so funny because what she was challenging me on is like the exact opposite of what this other guest was talking about. It's just so funny. (laughs) It's so funny that both of these people are on the same podcast and they are literally going to be further sides of the political spectrum. And both of them have been guests on my podcast and both of them are making a difference for conservation, which is beautiful. Like no one is ever going to hear me say on my podcast, please vote for this person or please vote for that person. I don't want anyone to feel that way. I don't want to ostracize anybody for their political beliefs. I want everybody to feel welcome as they listen to my podcast. You are a rewatologist is what I say. You are a part of this community and we need every single viewpoint that there is out there. So Hmm. I don't care if, I mean, like I also do, I will also say this too. I come from a very conservative place, a very Hmm. conservative place. And I am blessed that some of the closest people in my life are insanely conservative and some of the closest people in my life are insanely liberal. And since Mm. I am directly in the middle, I get to hear both of these conversations. And so I'm never pulled in one way or the other. And so it's, oh my gosh, it is so valuable to have people in your life that have every single viewpoint you can possibly imagine because it'll keep you in line with what everybody is saying and you won't get in this like 
tribal social media bubble where everyone's screaming the same thing. And you're like, wow, the other side isn't the enemy. They want the exact same thing that you do. We just all think that maybe the solution's a little different. That's all. So, so yeah, I, I just let them go. I let them talk and I delete and I leave it to my audience to decide if they agree with that statement or if they don't. And I hope that they don't get too upset one way or the other, because if they get upset then they might, then they're missing the point. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And if they do get upset, then hopefully they reflect on it on why they got upset. So yeah, Yeah. I almost cut, I almost cut it out, but I just like, no, I can't cutting out his viewpoints right now. It goes against the whole reason why I have this podcast. So <laughs> which, which is which is which is supremely what would I say elegant because I think I think things that we all do being conservationists being associated with nature is that diversity at its best right we have predators and prey they are like two different parts of the spectrum like at the same spectrum but just completely at loggerheads but still it's like together and I believe that uh, uh, if if there are people who really are listening and trying to take notes about having their own podcast series. It's very crucial to be passionate, but also very, very uh, impassionate about bringing these representations and thoughts out there so that it, it would serve more, as you said, it would serve better than actually just giving a very directional view to the whole thought process. Uh, that's fantastic. So I I was also wondering, uh, like thinking about or reading through, contemplating and reflecting about your journey, that you actually moved from like being hardcore in academia, or at least that was the thought process. And we know that academia still remains as one of the gatekeepers of conservation per se. But uh, so now, and from there you have moved on to more immediate uh, results-based and and a a very different sphere of doing conservation. And you're making a change. And I can endorse that. I'm like, I totally can. So so I just want to know that, of course, I'm sure you reflect upon it and you feel satisfied about it. But where do you envisage that this entire, these out-of-the-box thoughts, and it can be anything, not just doing conservation podcasts or, or conservation traveling, like different other thoughts. Where do you think that this fits in into this entire larger, you know, uh, gamut of con- doing or uh, doing conservation in the modern world, in the world that's coming, not just academia, but all of this. So if you could reflect upon that, that would be fantastic for students and others who are listening. Right. And I love that you bring that up because since you are in academia and then of course, anyone that is currently listening to this is also in academia. It's really easy to get the blinders on because you're so Mm -hmm. entrenched in the moment. And sometimes I I completely have mine. I had it. I'm like slowly. I'm like that's exactly. that. Anyway, yeah, sorry, sorry, so sorry. No, no, exactly. But and and I used to be as well. I mean, there I thought heavily about getting my PhD too, yeah. and then um, I reflected on okay, like what what good for the greater good of conservation would getting my PhD do? Is essentially the question I had to ask myself, and then I found these other avenues of conservation. And I'm like, wow, 
there are so many ways to make an impact. And honestly, I just followed my passions and academia is just one way. Like that is just like, it's just, Yes, it's, it's vitally important to have academia because we need to have those research papers to help steer us because we need the science. We yeah. need the science because if we don't have the science, then we are all just shooting in the dark. We at least need some sort of, <laughs> you know, like some arrow to follow down some Northern yeah. star to at least tell us what is actually going on. Okay. Yes. We need right. the science and we need to take action based in science. So right. academia has a very prominent part in this, but there is still almost no way to get access to that information. I run into this all the time. So even though, you know, I have multiple letters behind my name, I'm a scientist, all these things, there are still so many papers that I don't have access to because I'm not associated with an institution. I, I can't get the knowledge because there's a whole bunch of episodes that I want to put together that I can't because I don't have access to, to the research. And I'm somebody who's quote unquote in the field, but since I don't have the e.edu email address anymore, I can't get access to all of this research and man, it makes me mad. (laughs) And, and that's just me. Now imagine the, everybody else. Imagine your lawyer, your person that does work at a start, a startup or, or anybody else that isn't in our direct field, how are they going to learn about what's in academia? And so that is when the creative juices start flowing. Mm -hmm. And for me, I just followed my passions. And for you listening, maybe you're a really good artist. Maybe, maybe you're a fantastic photographer. I know some unbelievable photographers that are making insane impact from their, from their photos and what they do online. And it might be something else. I mean, maybe this is the younger generation and you're really good at making TikTok videos. Use your platform to talk about a conservation issue that you just learned about. There is so many different ways to do conservation now. And the more ways that we have out there, the better, because that means more people are going to be impacted. So if you are really good at TikTok, for example, because that's the big social media right now, then maybe once a week coming out with a really funny video that's really hilarious or something that's trending on TikTok, but it's conservation-based. Guess how many more people are going to see that versus just somebody who's in the field? Because like, like, you know, there's some crazy conservation dance. I mean, like some crazy like TikTok dance, but you do it in a lion costume. And then the captions, you make a little stat about lions. How many people could that be seen that that wouldn't be exposed to that conservation fact otherwise? So this is just an example of thinking outside of the box. And also too, um, a lot of businesses now are starting to realize that their consumer base wants conservation options. So that means that a lot more companies now have a whole sustainability department that wasn't there before. So- There are a lot of other ways to get jobs for conservation that aren't in conservation. And I'm starting to see this a lot now. So yes, academia is insanely important and we need our scientists, we need our researchers, but that is just like 10% of the whole picture. 
maybe not even 10 percent it's like this big of the percent <laughs> and, and it's also like the tip of the iceberg right. that's the whole thing right yeah right and also on my podcast um i interview people from all backgrounds so for example yeah. just a couple episodes ago i had this gal on where she her she and her mom founded a coffee shop that for conservation wow. so 10 percent of their proceeds go to care for wild which is the largest rhino orphanage in south africa she wow. volunteered there she volunteered there and now she is really she wants to do so much in conservation and i'm like girl we're locking arms guess all the crazy things you're going to do with me now because we you're my girl we're in conservation and we're doing this together so now yeah. she's going to be completely brought into this because she decided that she wanted to start this coffee shop to donate proceeds to help rhinos in South Africa. So like, that's just an example of like, I mean, that's completely out of the box. Her and her mom started this in wow. Rhino, Denver, Colorado. So yeah, there's so many ways to do conservation now and don't, don't think it's just academia. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, absolutely. Like I have been like, those blinders were on me for a long time until and unless I started being really disillusioned about the whole process. But like coming back to that, like, have you had, have you had, now, now this is something because since we know each other and we are comfortable speaking about this, uh, like, have you had any kind of pushbacks from this entire, because whenever we have these kinds of changes coming in, like, you know, opening up, like, and having these really fascinatingly, uh, you know, attractive new ideas, there is always a part of the society or the part of the previous community or the associated community who's like, no, that's like, that's very trivial. That's very, you know, that needs to be like, that's not actual conservation. Like the academia part is like actual, like I, I have often had those pushbacks when I'm like changing things in my pedagogy or doing something that's associated with like, bringing new things people are sort of in they go into the, their purest modes of like you know that's not the right way to do it so i'm trying to know that have you had any such you know pushbacks from the the community that you know who the community that i'm talking about is that well that's great but that's not part of it that's not doing really the 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 muck in the boots or like 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 the boots in the muck or the other way around i'm completely <laughs> messed it up but anyway muck in the boots all right no so like like the doing the doing the hard shoveling down there so have you had any kind of those pushbacks and i'm asking this because i'm sure students or or other individuals who are listening they have a lot of questions apprehensions like hesitations of doing something like what you have done right here and they they might be thinking like you know what if a lot of people think that this is very trivial this is something that's going to be like oh you go to my professor the professor is like eh, it's not but what what has been the overwhelming response from people whom you have reached out to is like have that has that been like really warm nice or lukewarm or you know yeah, yeah. um if anybody isn't on board with what I'm building that I just don't listen to them. I just don't care. Yeah. I just don't like, cause what I, I have such a vision for what I'm building and the impact that I've made so far, I know it's working. And Absolutely. also too, I'm, my podcast isn't built for the textbook 
people, <laughs> you know, like they're not my demographic. My demographic yeah. is people our age and younger and mm -hmm. that are really want to make a change and that connect on this level. So if somebody maybe feels that way, they have not voiced it to me. And even if they did, I would probably not politely laugh in their face because like, who are you to tell me what I'm doing is wrong? Like, I didn't ask your opinion. Um, but that's just me being me. Um, yeah, I would probably, I would probably be polite. Maybe if they had like a really good point, then maybe I would listen to them, but to see how much difference my podcast has made, like I said, I just hit 10,000 downloads in less than a year. Exactly. Yeah. For a that's, that's... super niche podcast. Like this is super niche. Like I'm not yeah. Joe Rogan. I'm not Tim Ferriss. And this has already hit those kind of numbers. And also too, just, just to hear some of the comments and stuff that's been made on some social media posts or somebody would listen like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for releasing this episode. I got so inspired in this way, shape or form. So yeah, yeah. I think that maybe I might be putting myself in a bubble, but I'm not mad about that. Cause I think the people that are attracted to the podcast and, and the platform that I'm building, it resonates with them more anyways. So, yeah. and also too, I mean, I have interviewed some older people that might fit your quote unquote, just standard, whatever yeah. you want, the image that you see in that. And a lot of them are so happy to see something new and refreshing. And then once they go through maybe an interview or they listen to a couple episodes and they understand what it is that I'm doing, then they have a lot more respect for it. And I will also say too, that having a couple letters behind my name does help. Like I can say that I have gone through all of the work. Yeah. Would I have as much respect if I did, didn't? I, I don't know. I don't know. And I think about that a lot. And there's sometimes I'm like, okay, well, what if I was a PhD? Does that mean that I would have even more respect in this? No. But how much more impact <laughs> would I make? Yeah, you're just no. like, you're just like, nah, nah. <laughs> no, doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. Um, but yeah, but I've thought about this a lot. And I will say that maybe for my own confidence, having a couple degrees helps is helps help me in that sense but i don't know if that actually matters if you know what i mean mm. so that's it's yeah yeah no that's profound because i i was just hoping that you would say that because i have struggled with it a lot in my career of bringing changes into the tiny little sort of restricted access that i have and um the, the like bringing new uh, bringing a new change or just well, well, it's it's very weird that most of our uh, thoughts are based on that, like this great philosophical quote that nothing's permanent except change, but we are really afraid of be having change. And I'm not, I, I'm seeing, what I'm trying to say is that it's kind of crazy to think that how people kind of sort of sit on the fence or start thinking about how to gel with the changes that are coming in. But what I'm increasingly seeing and being connected with people like you and others is that the, the new age of doing conservation is bold. And I think you would resonate 
with this pretty strongly that if we don't have we are desperate because i think i think we are supremely desperate it's so difficult to have those conflicts and not do anything about it and try anything that you can so i have listened to a lot of the podcasts that you have done and mo and and like every one of them so passionate and so strongly overwhelmingly uh like really welcoming the idea of getting the word out there which is i think the best uh like what would i say that this is like the best way this medium is making a change it's bringing the whole process together to a larger audience who as you directly mentioned that academia is inaccessible in a in a lot of ways and i'm pretty sure that we all know what those systemic inaccessibilities are beyond that the access the, the the inaccessibility that we just talked about and we are talking about people who are within that bubble is kind of insane that who's going to talk about those jargons if they just don't know what they are like if you don't bring them out there so fantastic so if you were you were to i'm sure like you have a ton of things to tell like my students or people who are listening but if there are something that you might want to tell students and young aspiring conservationists i use the word conservationist not conservation scientists but conservationists what would be your like you know suggestions or or those inspiring nuggets that you can tell them that they might follow so that they can think about making a change i'm sure they all want to while listening but how can they perceive and realize that that's like yeah because uh, well i don't know is if if uh, academia is really is 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 crucial is important as you have completely established but i don't know if uh that's going to be the way in the next or it's slowly getting outdated and i am really conflicted about it so <laughs> sure you are <laughs> you're like job security but i love seeing change i don't know how to feel about it <laughs> yeah. no I, yeah so yeah I would have to say for anybody listening, build your passion. What is it that you love more than anything? See if you can apply that to also teach about conservation in some way, shape or form. I will say one of the biggest drivers for me to build this podcast is nobody can take it away from me. Nobody can. I was so tired of being told no. And I'm just like, what do you mean? No, I was, I've been told no more times than I've been. I mean, I mean, I, I probably 90 to 10, like 90 to 10 ratio of times I've been told no versus time I've been told yes. And I just felt like, mm, like my passion and my, the contribution I can make to the world was stifled by others that didn't see the value in whatever the idea was. And so I think for me, that has been one of the most powerful parts of the concept of the, my whole podcast, my whole conservation platform that I've built is that no one can take it away and I can make it exactly how I want to. 
And that could be for whoever is listening. You don't have to be in the confines of whatever your nine to five is, whatever your current classes are. You don't have to stay within that. Yeah. You might have to turn in a paper to make a grade, but what if that lights an idea to do something that is completely outside of whatever your project is? And no one can take that away from you. Maybe you're a great artist, like I said, or you're really good at writing music or you can write really well, start a blog. Nobody can take a blog away from you. Just make sure you like own your.com and write, write whatever it is. Start social media. Well, platforms can shut down. So make sure you're kind of a little diversified there when it comes to social media, but, <laughs> but follow whatever it is that gets you up, what, what, whatever your hobby is and that you love doing, see if there's a way that maybe you could turn that into something more, because if you already have the passion there, then there's a really good chance that you might be able to adapt it to make a bigger impact. Cause that's exactly what I did. That's fantastic because yeah, because yeah, I guess that's, that's something that, that, that's really profound because what you just mentioned about ownership and just like you know you own it and nobody can take it from you and that that sort of shows when i see how passionate you are about your platform and that is something that that i'm pretty sure keeps the platform going which is yeah i like as i would say that i have been part of that system but like i've been there and i've chatted with brooke before and it's been like a lot like i would say like i am sort of an aspiring academician i'm not yet there if like like a lot of like in the standards of a lot of people but uh, so so a lot of people have reached out to me after that podcast that we did together about lines trying to know more about lines and i'm like wow I'm pretty sure that I have done, I've written the same things in a few, in a couple of my previous papers, but of course it didn't reach out. Now people are like, whoa, you know, lines are fun. Lines are there, lines are there. And then they're like, some people are like, we didn't even know Asian lines exist. And I'm like, <laughs> and that was all because you did that podcast. And that was like, yeah. So, so I completely can understand, can completely endorse how, how like strong this medium can be. And if anybody's listening and trying to figure out like how best you can shape it, uh, move forward, I would just reiterate or, or just reinforce what Brooke just mentioned, do it, follow your passion. And if you have any questions about that, you can, I will attach like uh, Brooke's all uh, website links and where you can reach her, you can reach her and we can, and I'm pretty sure she would be very happy to, uh, uh, like answer before you leave or before we sort of like wind down the, the, the chat, which I really don't want to, but because it's, it's fascinating. I feel like we could talk all day. Yeah. We can talk all day long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so but <laughs> that would be like, yeah. So I just wanted to know that I'm like, you have traveled, you have traveled extensively you have met a lot of people and you've built a lot of connections all across. And, um, and that has completely, uh, I'm sure that has not changed or at least uh, that your, your outlook has evolved over the years. So if you would reflect, if you look back to a younger Brooke, maybe 
15 years before. Uh, what would you be telling her? Not like whether, like as a change, what you sh what she should do, she but what would you be telling her as being like, like now, like you are, you would be telling her like, Brooke, you have no idea. Now this is what's gonna happen in the next 10 years. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that what are you, what are the highlights that you have, like, like those nuggets of, you know, inspiration. And if you, if we could end on that note, I'm sure a lot of people would be very inspired that you perhaps like, this is, this is a story from the African bush. This is a story from, like, as you just mentioned about Costa Rica, if you have anything that you might tell the younger group, like, wait, just told you skipping heart 10 years down the line, this is what's going to happen. You have no idea this is coming. Oh, man, you just triggered so <laughs> many happy travel memories. Go on, go on. Oh, God. Well, one, I just wish I could tell that Brooke, just wait till you see the world. Just like, wait till you see the world, baby girl. Like everything that you have dreamed about being in a super small little town you're going to do it because you made it happen and like I just wish that oh my god I kind of want to tear up right now because I, I wanted it so bad Stotra I wanted it so bad and I had no idea how I was going to make it happen I've been on my own since I was 18 like my parents did everything they could but the last thing they could have me do was see the world so probably, oh my, what, what story do I want? I would say probably the craziest story that I've ever had was I was in the middle of a wild dog hunt in Botswana. So I was, I was, it was just me and my guide and there's this pack of wild dogs. So this is in Botswana, which again, amazing country. I, uh, such an, uh, such a great spot for wildlife. And we had gone out or like, oh my gosh, wild dogs. Cause you know, I've been a predator biologist for a long time and I understand yeah. how special it is to see wild dogs. Of course, big cats are my thing. And I've absolutely <laughs> I love big cats. I did not take offense. Yes, but I, I was so excited at this point. Cause yeah. also, so this is a month long trip. So I was gone for a women in conservation documentary in Tanzania. And then I was doing a scouting trip for my job at the time with Nathab. Um, and I, I ended my trip in Botswana. So by this point, I'd already seen cheetah, lion, and leopard. And, and which of course I was like, <laughs> seeing all these pets and then finally got to see wild dogs. So we tracked these wild dogs down and it was really hot. I was there during the hot season. And so this like October. So yeah, mm. starting to get really hot and dry. Blah really I was sweating a lot and the dogs were super lethargic they're just like laying around blah, blah, blah. and we found them so we we drive up and in Botswana we were on uh private reserves and so when you're on private yeah. reserves you can go off trail so we right. actually like drove up to this little group this little pack and they had 14 puppies oh and all of these puppies are just like around us and i have all i have all these videos i can totally send you some if you just want to be oh, super jealous it. of my <laughs> as if i'm not already <laughs> yeah. yeah so we're just like in this pack and they don't care i mean they know they know that these uh 
the guide vehicles aren't going to hurt them in any way. So they're super relaxed, super chill. They're all sleeping. They're like coming underneath the truck and falling asleep and making all of their vocalizations and all their behaviors, yep. just super cool to see. And then at the other half of adults come back. And so there's the big greeting, which I'm sure anybody has seen on any nature documentary when the uh, adults come back and they all like, you know, chomping at their mouth, trying to get food. They're super excited. All the dogs are going crazy. And then all of them, the, the alpha female, she perks up and they all start to walk in a certain direction. And my guide's like, here we go. It's on, they're going on a hunt. And so we follow them. And first we followed the puppies because, you know, had, uh, there was a couple adults to stay with the puppies and all the rest of the pack went to hunt. And for the next two hours, we were with these dogs as, and they were relentless. They kept chasing stuff until they brought something down. And oh my gosh, it was the wildest thing of all time. We couldn't keep up because the dogs are going in and out of the bush of course, yeah. all, all around. And then at the very last moment, right as the sunset, they brought down an Impala. And wow. we were right there. We watched the whole thing. They devoured oh, I'm getting it. Goosebumps. Oh my God. They devoured it like super fast. Yeah. It was even funnier as my guide. Cause this um, particular Impala was missing one of his horns. And so they're like, oh yeah. man, I liked that guy. <laughs> as he's currently being devoured by a pack of wild dogs. And then um, the adults, some of the adults stopped eating and brought the puppies. So then mm. I have videos and footage of these puppies like springing through all of these grasslands to come Aww. eat what's left of the Impala. So I will say it, it, one, it was amazing to see a hunt. And then two, that it was with a thriving wild dog pack. Like it wow. was just like all of those conservation feels all at once. Yeah. It was like a highlight of my wow. life, hands down. Well, um, <laughs> well, I, I would just say that it just, the passion, it just shows. And I, I got goosebumps listening to the stories that you just had to mention. And um, I just want to say to anybody listening that what Brooke just mentioned is that, uh, that like to a younger Brooke that wait to see what the world is and how beautiful it is. And I am so glad, Brooke, that you said that you really wanted this. You really worked so hard. You wanted so hard for this. And that shows, and I would just say to anybody watching that, uh, that if you're really passionate about it, do it. Because there's so many ways to do conservation that it would be a disservice to the planet if you start wearing those blinders. Or, or if anybody asks you to do so, and I hope I'm pretty confident that that's what, uh, that's that's what Brooke has broken those shackles and removed those uh, blinders and seeing the world in those funky glasses that rewild that 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 logo of that. So I guess glasses. Yeah, that those are those are the those that's remove your blinders, wear those funky glasses because that's what conservation right now looks at, looks like. So yeah, I guess um, with that, I would say that, thank you, Brooke, for being so insightful and being so amazing. And I hope you all the force so that you can keep going and uh, do whatever, do this inspiring thing and do, do this, do and make the impacts that you are making. And I must say that I am very fortunate and very proud 
that I can even think about, like I can call myself that, yeah, I know Brooke Mitchell Norman, right? So, and I can, perhaps I can text her and she might, she would respond to that text sometime for sure. <laughs> so I'm so, I'm, so, I'm so, so lucky for that. So thank you so much. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.